The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, All right, Virginia. Friends, we're going to go ahead and begin. Sorry to cut this off. Can I adjust this just ever so slightly? Okay. All right. There we go. I'm shorter than everyone else who will be speaking today, so I have to lower the microphone. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Paul. I have the privilege of serving as, thank you, I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors at Stafford Baptist Church, which is just about uh, 10 miles up the road off of Route 1. Um, we have been a supporting church of Foundation since uh, it launched, and I get, yeah, regularly to have lunch with Bobby. Uh, I've gotten to know Jake, um, and so really thankful for the elders' invitation to come uh, and bring God's word to you this morning. Um, we are praying for you guys as our service kicks off here in about now. Hopefully, they're starting, and uh, and we'll be praying for you all as, as we gather this morning. So if you can go ahead and open to the book of Colossians, the letter of Paul to the church in Colossae. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23, 15 through 23 of chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, just to give you just a little bit of context since we're kind of jumping into the middle of it, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church that he had never met. So Paul did not plant uh, the church in Colossae. It was planted by someone he had uh, discipled, likely had shared the gospel with in Epaphras. And Epaphras had, had either come and visited Paul or had written to Paul and said, hey, things aren't going how I want them to go. And so Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, uh, and he goes to great lengths to affirm to them that they have received the real gospel. It would have been likely that the false teachers who are attacking the church would have been saying, well, you didn't get the gospel from Paul, so you don't have the real gospel. And Paul's like, no, you, you have the real gospel. You believe in the real Jesus, and this Jesus is Lord over all. So he's encouraging them not to minimize Jesus, but to, to, to believe that Jesus is Lord over all and to live in light of that. It's very similar to lots of Paul's letters, where the first half is written more theologically, and then how that affects their life in the, in the second half of the book. So we're going to kind of focus in on, on what I like to call the, the highlight, the peak of, of Paul's theology of Jesus, not just here in Colossians, but likely in most of, of the scriptures. We have a, a wonderful vision, a picture. Pray for God's help in the hearing and understanding of his word. Let's start. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. 
which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, our only hope is in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And so we turn to him this morning. Father, we ask that you would reveal him to us, that we might see him more clearly, that we might see him as the supreme Lord of all, who is our sufficient Savior. Father, may our hope be ever more certain and secure because of what we hear this morning. By your help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm pleased to say that I like Jesus Christ. I would go as far as to say I love him. He was a pretty brilliant man when he was alive and still remains an amazing spiritual symbol of simple stuff like goodness and loving thy neighbor and doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Those aren't my words, just to be clear. Those are the words of an actor, uh, Andrew Garfield, who's well known for his portrayal of Spider-Man. But I, I use those words as we begin this morning because I think they're reflective of how the world thinks about Jesus. And what's the problem with this view of Jesus? That he's an amazing spiritual symbol of good stuff. Well, quite simply, this is a Jesus who we can't turn to in trouble. An amazing spiritual symbol, one of many spiritual powers, not particularly unique, and as Andrew said, fully dead. Then when trouble comes... He is not a sufficient Jesus. So when financial trouble comes, we look to the patron of real estate to help us sell our home to get out of trouble. When tragedy strikes, rather than trusting that Jesus is providentially ruling over the world, we look to other spiritual powers who might be able to lend a hand. When our holiness stalls, we take it upon ourselves and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to try and get it back into gear. If Jesus is just one of many, he is not sufficient when trouble comes. And I think this is what's happening in the, in the church of Colossae. They're being pressured to make Jesus one of many spiritual powers. Jesus is good, but there's other spiritual powers that are also good. But the Apostle Paul wants the Colossians to know that Jesus is unique and preeminent over all. And therefore he is sufficient for their hope. That's our, our big idea. If I was to summarize all that I'm going to say in the next 45 minutes, this is how I would summarize it. Do not shift from your hope in the preeminent Lord of all. Do not shift from your hope in the preeminent Lord of all. So Paul either uses a, a well-known hymn in verses 15 through 20, or he might even be writing this himself to, to teach us that Jesus is preeminent, that he is supreme. That's the idea of preeminent, that it's Jesus is unique. He has all authority over heaven and earth. He is the supreme Lord of all. As we read, maybe you caught this, the repetition of all or everything over and over and over again. About nine times in our passage are put under Jesus. He is not just a spiritual symbol of good stuff. He is the king of creation and new creation. So do not shift from your hope in the preeminent Lord of all. So basically, we're going to work through in, in two parts. The first part, 
will be the, the supremacy of Jesus. And I'm going to give you 11 reasons from this text for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then we'll conclude where Paul does by calling us to hope in his sufficiency. So we'll, we'll look at 11 reasons for Jesus' preeminence, his supremacy, and then we'll conclude with a call to hope in him. Well, let's start with our first reason for the supremacy of Jesus, for his preeminence. We find it in the first part of verse 15. Jesus is the unique revelation of God, the unique revelation of God. Look down at verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God. So Paul has just reminded them, these Colossians, that the Father had delivered them from the dominion of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's what we see in verse 13. So that's who this he is. Paul changes the, the subject. The subject becomes now this beloved son, who in verse 14, we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. He, that is Jesus, the beloved son, is the image of the invisible God. Throughout the Bible, we're told God is invisible. You can look at 1 Timothy 1:17 to read of this. We cannot see God. In fact, John 1:18 tells us no one has ever seen God. And yet Jesus makes God known. He is the image of God. That is, he reveals God to us. Just like a picture reveals something about who we are, right? Our hair color, our eye color, how big our nose is, in my case especially. We can look at a picture and get to know something about me. I have black hair and brown eyes and a big nose. So too, we can look at Jesus and, and learn something about who God is. In fact, not only can we learn something about who God is, but we come to know God as we come to know Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, that is the Word made flesh, has made him known. So Jesus reveals God in a unique way. Man was made in the image of God at creation. Nothing else in creation is made in the image of God. But while mankind was made in the image of the invisible God, what we learn here in verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We reveal God to the world in small parts, but Jesus fully reveals him. He is the image of the invisible God. This is what we learn in Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So when you look on Jesus, you see God. There's no distortion in Jesus. When we look to Jesus, we see the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So friends, Jesus is not just an astonishing spiritual symbol. No, he is the unique revelation of God, the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God is like, friends, you must look to Jesus. So are you doing that? Are you getting to know Christ? Are you doing things, religious things, just to check them off your list? Or are you pursuing knowing Jesus? So Jesus is preeminent. He is supreme over all things because he uniquely reveals God to us. But that's just reason one of eleven. Jesus is supreme because he is the king of all of creation. Jesus is the king of all of creation. This is what we see in the second half of verse 15. Look down again with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all of creation. 
the firstborn of all creation. This language of firstborn of all creation has been largely misunderstood by lots of people in the history of the church. It's been suggested by some that this passage means that Jesus is a created being. He was the first created being. This is what Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons teach. But this is why we must read in context. As a, a pastor I love to listen to says, just keep reading. When we come up to, to verses or that, and phrases that are confusing, what's the best practice? Just keep reading. So let's just keep reading. What's, what's said in verse 16? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So rather than being a creature, what we see is Paul's affirming to us that he is creator, not creature. So what then does this firstborn language mean? Well, we have to read it in context of all of the scripture. This language of firstborns used in Psalm 89. We read a little bit of that this morning. In Psalm 89, verse 27, we read this. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So God is stating that his messianic savior king, the one who's going to come in the line of David, will be made the firstborn. This is not that he will be born first, but rather as we keep reading, we see that he will be given a certain kind of authority, the highest of the kings of the earth. This language of firstborn is common in this culture to refer to the one who, who is given certain rights and authority, a particular standing. And so Jesus, here in Psalm 89, again in Colossians 1.15, Paul picking up that language, is saying not that the, that the Messiah, that Christ was created or made, but he's declaring his unique authority over all of creation. Jesus stands supreme over all of creation. He is king. There is nothing in creation then that is excluded from his reign. That's what Paul says, the firstborn of all creation. Friends, there's nothing in your life of the created things that you have that's not under Jesus' reign. We could list them off. Your job, your house, your kids, your yard, your drive to work, your food, your money, your walk around the neighborhood, your technology. Of Jesus Christ. Now parts of the creation, most of the creation may not recognize Jesus as king, but that does not make it untrue. Jesus is uniquely king of all. So just as Jesus uniquely reveals God, he is uniquely related to the creation as supreme over it. Friends, there's no higher authority in heaven or on earth than Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Is Jesus the highest of your authorities this morning? Jesus is preeminent over all because he uniquely reveals God. He is the image of God. And because he is king over all of creation. But we see also Jesus is supreme because he is the agent of all of creation. He is the one by whom all creation was made. This is reason number three. Jesus is the agent of all of creation. So this is what we see in verse 16. Look down again with me. That four there is, is helping us understand Jesus is king because, why? Because he is the agent of creation. He was the one through whom all things were created. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. The apostle goes to great lengths to demonstrate the universality of Jesus' agency in creation. 
He qualifies it with three sets of qualifiers as all things. What do we mean? Well, all things in heaven and on earth. So both physical and spiritual, things below and things above. Visible and invisible, things we can see and cannot see. Indeed, all things in the spiritual realm. That's the reference there to thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So often this language in, in Paul's epistles is speaking of the, the spiritual principalities and powers that are at work in our world. We see the same sort of language in Ephesians 6.12 where we're told that we wrestle against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So Paul is saying whether things above or things below, whether things seen or not seen, even the spiritual powers and authorities that you Colossians are, are being tempted to put alongside of Jesus, no, he has created all of those things and therefore he reigns supreme over all of those things. Far from being a created being, Jesus is creator of everything. And this makes what Jesus does all the more significant as we consider that the one who made all has made God known by taking on flesh. I love as Andrew Peterson puts it, the baby in Mary's womb, he was the maker of the moon. The creator of all things has come to us. Created not just through him, but ultimately for him. We move to our fourth reason for the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is the reason for all of creation. We're just going to sit here at the end of verse 16 and just meditate on those two words, for him, for just a moment. This is part of Paul's larger argument of Jesus' preeminence in all of creation, yet we find a, a truth worthy of us for us highlighting. You know, you'll hear it said over the next few weeks, probably more than we all want to, that Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, uh, Paul goes a step further. He's not just the reason for the, the season that we're celebrating. No, he is the reason for all of creation. All of creation was not just made by Jesus, but it was made for him. The planets, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the seas, the mountains, the sand, the rocks, all things were created for this Jesus. And this means you and I were created for Jesus. When you were created, friends, it was so that Jesus might be glorified in your life. It was his plan from before time that all things in heaven and earth would be made for the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus, therefore, is not just an appendix on our lives, something that we, we go to when we feel like it. No, he is at the very center of it. The whole cosmos was created for him. In other words, brothers and sisters, you were custom designed for the praise of Jesus. You were custom designed for the praise of Jesus. Yet we live our lives trying to find something other than Jesus to make us happy. It's like taking a couch custom designed for a 1,200 square foot living room and slapping it into a 300 foot tiny home. It doesn't work. The couch would be bigger than my house. It's unsatisfying. Friends, this is why no created thing can satisfy our hearts. Have you experienced that dissatisfaction with the things of the world? Right? You caught yourself after hours of scrolling or watching TV and just felt dissatisfied with, with the created things. 
It's because all things were created for one purpose, for the praise and the glory of Jesus. You were customed, designed for the praise of our Savior. So as we make our way through the first two verses, we're, we've already seen four reasons for the supremacy of Jesus. He uniquely reveals God. He is king over all of creation. He is the agent of all of creation. And he is the reason for all of creation. But the apostle doesn't stop there. He keeps pressing in on this. We go on to the fifth reason for Jesus' preeminence. Jesus existed before all of creation. In many ways, the next two reasons here in verse 17 serve as a conclusion to the first part of Paul's hymn, Jesus' supremacy over creation. You could split this hymn up easily by looking at Jesus' supremacy over creation. right after verse 17. So we'll just be brief here in these next two reasons. Let me just highlight that this language of before could refer to Jesus' rank as king, but I think it's likely speaking to his pre-existence before the creation of the world. So we read in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. Or John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am. Or in Revelation 1.8, that Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is not constrained by time. He is God, fully God, as we will see in just a few moments. So again and again, we're taught Jesus is not created, but he existed before all things because he is God. And therefore, because he existed before anything else existed, he is supreme over that, all that exists. Jesus is supreme because he existed before all of creation. But that leads us to number six. Jesus is supreme because he sustains all of creation. That's what we see in, at the end of verse 17. And in him, all things hold together. So Jesus has not only existed before all of creation, he now sustains all of creation. He sustains the universe, Hebrews tells us, by the very word of his power. Just as God spoke and creation came to be, Jesus speaks and holds the creation in place. He is the sustainer of the universe. He holds all things together. He is the very reason the planets remain in orbit. The sun continues to shine. The reason gravity continues to work. From the largest aspects of our universe to the smallest atom in our body, Jesus Christ is holding it all together. What has been brought into being by Jesus is now being maintained by Jesus. The 28th question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in the 16th century, explains the advantage that we have knowing that this is true of Jesus, that he is creator and sustainer. It writes like this. Because Jesus is creator and sustainer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. I think this truth is, is bringing out the truth of, of, first, of Colossians chapter 1 verse 17. That you are so firmly in the hand of Jesus, the God-man who took on flesh, that you cannot move apart from the will of the Father. 
Friends, not one atom, not one virus, not one decision can shake you out of the hand of Jesus Christ. Jesus is holding all things together. He is the sustainer and Lord of all of creation. So here we've seen six reasons for the preeminence of Jesus, all of them somewhat relating to Jesus as being Lord over creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the, the king of all creation, the agent of all creation, the reason for all creation, existing before all of creation, and now sustaining all of creation. But the one who holds the universe together is also the Lord of new creation, of our redemption. And so we move then in our seventh reason to turn to this new creation in verse 18. The seventh reason for the preeminence of Jesus, he is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Look at verse 18 again. And he is the head of the body, the church. So Jesus is not just Lord over all created people, but he is Lord over his newly created people. The body is a common illustration of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12, and Ephesians 1. And just like my body does not move apart from the command of my brain, right? My brain is telling my arm to do this, and I don't know why it can do this, right? Our church, the church, is Jesus is the one who governs and directs his body. Jesus is the head. So then this is not just Bobby's church, or Jake's church, or Jordan's church, whoever name you want to slap in there, it is Jesus' church. He is the head. And so when we submit, we're submitting ourselves not just to the the preferences of our leaders or of others, but we're submitting ourselves to the directives of our Savior. Jesus is the good shepherd who leads and guides and directs and protects his church. But when we see Jesus as the head of the body, we're not just to see that he's the one who governs and directs. But what's also true of our body? It doesn't go anywhere without the head, right? Death happens when the body goes somewhere without the head. So too, this body, its foundation, the church universal, goes nowhere without their head. He has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. So when either two or three are gathered in his name, there I am among them, Jesus says. The resurrected Jesus now walks with and leads his body. He is the head of the church. So why is Jesus the head of the body? Well, that brings us to our eighth reason for the preeminence of Jesus. Jesus is the founder of new creation. Why is he the head? Why is he over all of creation? Well, because he is the one through whom new creation has now come. He is the founder of new creation. This section here at the end of verse 18 bears some resemblance to the, the, what we saw in verse 15 and 16. This language of being the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent in everything, is pulling up some of that language that Paul used to talk about Jesus as the creator. Well, he's not only the creator of all of creation, he is the creator of new creation. And why is that? Well, because he has risen from the dead. The church began with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. His resurrection marks the beginning of this new reality, this new age that we now exist in, the church. It's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Jesus' resurrection from the dead started something. His tomb became the womb of this new creation. So Jesus is therefore supreme over all those who have been given new life. If his death and resurrection is what gives us any hope of resurrection, he then gets to reign supreme over all that he brings to life through his resurrection. Jesus is the one who created and now sustains creation. Jesus is the one who created and now sustains new creation. And why is this? Why why is Paul telling us this? Well, he says in verse 18, Again, I think Paul is very clear about what he's trying to do. What is he teaching us about Jesus in all of these reasons? He's demonstrating that that there is nothing that Jesus is not Lord over. He is Lord over all. He is in surpassing in worth over all things. All of the cosmos, creation and new creation, have fallen under the preeminent rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Friends, what are you not submitting to? To Jesus. What is it that you're saying? Jesus has reign and rule over these things, but not this. His authority reaches every area of our lives in creation and in new creation. Nothing falls out of his purview, Paul says, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the preeminent Lord of all for, for these eight reasons, but he's not done. We see a ninth reason for the preeminence of Jesus. Jesus is fully God. Look at verse 19. So why is Jesus preeminent in all things? Well, again, the four there is helping us. It's connecting us to what Paul just said. He is preeminent in everything because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus is preeminent in everything for one reason because he verse is that the very nature of God, the full attributes and divine power are permanently abiding in Jesus. Jesus is fully God. Friends, he's not just an amazing spiritual symbol. He is God of God, light of light. Jesus was both 100% man and 100% God and is today as well. He did not empty himself of his divinity. No, he became like us. He took on flesh. And the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in that flesh. From beginning to end, Jesus is presented as the one who is fully God and fully man. And therefore, Jesus is preeminent over all. But Paul continues. Jesus is not just fully God. We continue pressing on in the reason to the now tenth reason. For Jesus' preeminence. As the God-man, the, the one who is fully God, he becomes the agent of our reconciliation. The agent of our reconciliation. So just as he was the agent of creation, now we see he's the agent of new creation, of reconciliation. Look at verse 20. And through him. So this is combined to the argument. Again, this is all making the argument. Why is Jesus preeminent in everything? Well, he is the one in whom God dwells, the fullness of God dwells, and... Through him to reconcile.
making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is preeminent over all because the, the fullness of God dwells in him and because through him came reconciliation for all things in heaven and on earth. When Jesus came, the angels announced peace on earth to those who believe. This is the idea of reconciliation. It is that idea of making peace. So if Jesus is the one who does this act of reconciling to himself all things, that, that demands that there's a need for reconciliation. This is what we know to be true. It's what we, why we've confessed our sins even this morning, because the world is opposed to God. That though we were created for Jesus, we want nothing to do with him. Paul puts it in Romans 1 that rather than desiring our creator, we worship the creation. Rather than pursuing the glory of God, we pursue our own glory. Rather than pursuing God's purposes, we do what we want. And because God is holy, he cannot dwell with sin. He is too good. He is light, and in him there is no darkness. In direct opposition to him. But the good news is that even before time began, God had a plan of reconciling all things. And the one who brings that reconciliation is Jesus Christ. And he does it through the blood of his cross. That's what we see at the end of verse 20. Making peace, how? By the blood of his cross. God could not be holy and just if he did not rightly hand out justice. He could not be just if he does not punish sin. But the truth of the gospel is that he does punish sin. That he pours out his wrath on Jesus Christ. The image of the invisible God. The one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. The one who was there at the beginning of creation. The one in whom all creation holds together. Took on God's judgment upon himself. The Father poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. He took on God's judgment so that we might be made at peace with God through faith. How does, God, how does Jesus make peace? By the very blood of his cross. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us that there is one mediator, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Peace has been made. Reconciliation, reconciliation has happened through his blood. But this reconciliation, here in verse 20, is, is more than just those who willingly come to Jesus. I think this reconciliation here, if we look at it, says reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So you have to wrestle. What does that all things mean? How does he reconcile to himself all things? Well, one way of saying it is that what went awry in Genesis 3 will be brought to order in Revelation 21 and 22. It's like an accountant who reconciles into order at the end of the year right he jesus is now reconciling all things in heaven and on earth one day to bring all things into peace with god through the work of his cross now this isn't universalism we're not saying everyone will be saved the order that will be brought will be the order of salvation for those who believe in jesus and judgment for those who do not they will be brought into right relationship with god through that judgment because that's what they're that's what that's what they deserve so some things will be reconciled willingly as we receive Jesus to be Lord, and some things reconciled unwillingly through everlasting judgment. But Paul is saying order will be brought, and we are assured of that because of the blood of Jesus. That which was unreconcilable will be made in order, will be reconciled to God through the blood of his cross. 
And therefore, Paul says, Jesus is preeminent over all. So far, we've seen ten glorious reasons for the preeminence of Jesus. Let me just recount them for you. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the king of all creation. He is the agent of all creation. He is the reason for all of creation. He existed before all of creation. He now sustains all of creation. He is the head of the body. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the one in whom all fullness of God dwells, and he is the one who reconciles, the agent of reconciliation. But Paul brings home this argument. I think he concludes it's him there, and then he takes the truths that he's just taught, and he gives us one more reason for the preeminence of Jesus, and that reason is a personal reason. He brings home his argument and gets personal. Jesus is preeminent because he makes you new. Look down at verses 21 and 22. That seems to be the conclusion of this hymn. And Paul takes that conclusion and says, And you, and you, Colossians, and you, Foundation Church, you who were once alienated and hostile of mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul recounts what they were like before salvation. His description is a description of all before Christ, that we were hostile strangers to God, enemies working against him. Friends, this is where we were apart from God, and for some of you, that may be where you are this morning. The good news of the gospel is that, and the the hope of Jesus' preeminence is that we don't have to remain there. The apostle says, it was you who once were alienated. Those who once were alienated are now reconciled to God. Those who were separated have been brought near, and they've been brought near through the work of Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God coming to earth, taking on flesh, living the life we couldn't live, but dying in our place and rising again on the third day so that we might be made new. And Jesus dies not just that we might be made forgiven, But this newness is that we would be holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Those who were enemies and wanted nothing to do do with God could now be made holy and blameless and above reproach. What seemed unfathomable is now a reality, Paul says. And this is a reason for Jesus' preeminence. So church, you have a reason to to say Jesus is Lord of all without all of the other things that we've just considered. The We have a reason to say Jesus is Lord of all because he has made us new. Because we personally have come to know Jesus as all of these things. As the creator and sustainer and the creator of new creation. We have every reason to view Jesus as preeminent because we have experienced his power. His supremacy as he's come. And if you're here and not a Christian, it's not too late. The creator and sustainer of the world came to earth so that you might be made new, that you might be reconciled to him through his body of death. So there it is, friends, 11 reasons for the preeminence of Jesus. He is the supreme Lord of all because he is the unique revelation of God, because he is the king of all of creation, because he is the agent in creation of all, 
He is the reason for the creation of all. He has existed before all of creation. He sustains all of creation. He is the head of the church, the founder of new creation, fully God. He is the agent of reconciliation, and he personally makes you new through faith. There it is, the supremacy of Jesus on display. He is the supreme Lord of all things. And if Jesus is supreme, friends, if he is who this, what, what verses 15 through 22 tell us that he is, it means he is sufficient for our hope. This is what we see here in verse 23. If Jesus is the Lord of all, then hope in Jesus. Look at verse 23 with me. Paul writes, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became minister. So Paul writes it as a conditional. This is something commonly that he does throughout his epistles, and we see it throughout the New Testament. They will be presented blameless if they indeed continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope. So what is Paul wanting to do then? What, what's the purpose of writing this? Well, he wants them to endure. He wants them to be warned and exhorted to trust in Jesus, to not turn from your hope in him. Paul says, if you just claim Jesus is one of many, then you lose all of the ground for your hope. But if Jesus is supreme Lord of all, then we can be confident that he is sufficient for us in his salvation. One author said it this way, his sufficient adequacy depends on his supreme authority. The reason Jesus is a solid hope for your salvation is because he is preeminent. Verses in Colossians 1. So friends, when we shift from this supreme Jesus, when, when we say with our mouths, but live in a different way. We forsake this kind of hope, and our hope becomes like a child who's just learned to walk. It's not stable and steadfast. So friends, the call of this passage is to not shift from your hope. Stay, stay your eyes and your heart on Christ. There are lots of arenas and reasons why we might be tempted to doubt the supremacy and therefore sufficiency of Jesus. So I want to conclude this morning with, with three areas where, where you can continue to hope and remain in the hope of the gospel. Three areas where we might be tempted to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus. So we're tempted to doubt, one, that Jesus is sufficient in our sanctification. We're tempted to doubt that Jesus is sufficient in our sanctification, in our growth from enemies to those who are holy. So rather than putting our hope in Jesus, we put our hope in, in coming to church every week. Rather than, than putting our hope in Jesus, we put our hope in having the best devotional life. Rather than putting our hope in Jesus for growth, we put our hope in how much we give or how much we serve at a church. And in this, we take the work of sanctification, which is meant to be a work of setting our hope on Jesus, and we put our hope on ourselves and say, if I can do this, then I will grow. If I do this and this and this, then I will grow as a Christian. But friends, new behaviors do not give new life. I can live all the right ways, but if I've turned my hope from Jesus and put all my hope in that, then I have no hope. So let me encourage you that in your sanctification, 
to put your hope in Jesus. Let's put some feet on that. What does that look like in, in real life? It's one thing for me to say that from the pulpit. What does that look like for you this week? I don't know where you all struggle. Uh, I haven't had enough time to get to know all of you to, to make this particularly applicable. But I just I took what I know our church struggles with, which is prayer and anxiety. Prayer and anxiety. So to set our hope on Jesus for being sufficient in our sanctification as we try to, to pray more. One thing we might do is just say, hey, you need to pray. Right? If someone came to me and said, hey, I, I want to I I pray more. I feel like I'm really struggling in my holiness of prayer. I might say, well, you just need to pray more. Just keep praying, and then you'll, you'll kind of figure it out. Right? That is the advice that we give. I give that advice at times. And it's not terrible advice, but it's not the most helpful. It's, it's taking their hope from Jesus and saying, if you just pray more, then you'll get that. What's a better way of doing that? Well, friends, don't you know who Jesus is? It would be taking them to a passage like Colossians 1 and saying, don't you know that Jesus is God, very God, has all the power of God, that he dwells with you today, that he is the head of the church, that he loves you and cares for you, that he's sustaining all of creation. Or then swelled in a desire to pray. Someone came to me and said, I'm anxious. It's not helpful to say, don't be anxious, Right? Don't stop. Stop being anxious. No, what's helpful is to point them to Jesus and say, Jesus loves you. He cares for you. And we know that because he died on the cross. And Romans 8.32 tells us that if God has not spared his own son, what will he withhold from you? When we point ourselves to Jesus, we're showing that Jesus is sufficient for our sanctification. It doesn't minimize our work. Yes, I need to pray. All right, I, I need to I need to cast my cares and my anxieties on the Lord. Those are true things. We don't want to minimize our work, right? Paul tells us in Romans 6 that just because grace abounds, that doesn't mean we should sin all the more. But friends, we want to know that Jesus is sufficient for our sanctification. That's one way we're tempted to doubt. We'll be shorter than these other two. We're tempted to doubt that Jesus is sufficient to sustain his church. We're tempted to doubt that Jesus is sufficient to sustain his church. So one area where we lose hope is that, that in the sustaining of his church. We're tempted to think that if I did this program, or I sang these songs, or if we had shorter sermons, maybe some of you are thinking right now, this church would grow. But friends, take comfort that the one who is the head of the body is sufficient to ensure his body will grow. Which means we give ourselves to doing what Jesus has told us to do, and we allow him to provide the growth as he promises. We're tempted to doubt Jesus is sufficient just to stay in his church. And finally, we're tempted to doubt that Jesus is sufficient in our suffering. There's nothing quite like suffering that takes our eyes off of the hope in Jesus and puts them on the world around us. Suffering shouts to us that Jesus is not enough, that he is not sufficient. But what we've seen is that Jesus is supreme over all things, all that was created, even viruses and sicknesses and financial troubles, whatever might be causing your suffering, Jesus is supreme over those things. And therefore, he is sufficient for our hope in the midst of those trials and troubles and dangers. Don't let your suffering take your eyes off of Jesus and onto your circumstances, but rather continue to set your eyes on the one who has control. So we're tempted to doubt Jesus is sufficient in our sanctification, in the sustaining of his church, and in our suffering. But friends, Jesus is sufficient because he is supreme. Far from being Jesus is the preeminent Lord of all who is your sufficient Savior. So do not shift from your hope in the preeminent Lord of all.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. What a joy it is to know that not only is he supreme, but because he is supreme, he is sufficient. Father, may our hearts this week be led in thanksgiving for all the ways in which we've seen this morning Jesus is supreme and sufficient in our lives. And Father, in the areas of our lives where we we are holding back from the supremacy of Christ, where we are not making him king, may you help us to to bring those things to you and to, to, to show that he is Lord over all of our lives. Or may we rest in his sufficiency this afternoon as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.